So you are out on a Saturday afternoon looking to buy your first home, and you're going from house to house, and as you do that, you're telling yourself, I don't care what the furnishings look like. I don't care what the decorations look like. I am just looking to see if I want to buy this actual house or not. But the truth is we know the way the home is staged, the way it's furnished and presented is going to affect how much you're going to be willing to pay for that home, how much you really like it or not. And that is why professional home staging is an occupation. Today I'm talking with someone who says that many of those homes for sale could also act as kind of mini stores so that when you buy the house, you could also buy the couch and the kitchen table too. That could be really a huge retail opportunity. Over 5 million existing homes were sold in 2018, according to the National Association of Realtors. But of those 5 million sales, how many of them could realistically serve as mini retail showrooms? Today, I'm talking with Lindsay Meyer at Batch, and that's just what I'm going to ask her. You're listening to Where We Buy. My name is James Cook. I research retail and real estate for JLL. This is the show where we talk with retail experts and visit shopping spots across the nation. My name is Lindsay Meyer. I am the founder and CEO of Batch. Batch is a next-gen retailer founded and based in the San Francisco Bay Area. We got started in 2017, and we're currently working on a new retail model where we see um, homes or residential spaces as future retail space. And so we sort of masquerade as a home staging business um, and take residences that are on the market for sale and envision them as pop-up retail space, wherein all of the products that we place uh, becomes available for sale. You know, it's typical in real estate when you're listing a home for sale to do things like open houses or brokers tours. And compared to the types of of foot traffic that we have in our actual showrooms or in our physical storefronts, um, the amount of exposure and foot traffic we get in what we call our showcases, these are our sort of pop-up staged locations, um, can be, you know, a lot lower or certainly variable. But what's interesting is we're monetizing at sometimes a similar or even stronger level through these showcases. So you have this incredibly captive audience. Like people sometimes will go to open houses just to like check out their neighbor's house, which is coming on the market for sale for the first time in many years. But oftentimes it's because they're actually looking for a residence to buy themselves. And when they do that, they're going to become totally in market for all of these product purchases we're sort of just placing right at the point of sale let's say i own an apartment building and i've got um an apartment that i want you to do a showcase in so people are going to come and see it i'm assuming the apartment owner's paying you and then you also earn income if people buy things while they're in the apartment exactly so we have a two-part um revenue model for showcase and exactly as you described um, we'll often work with developers who 
are maybe flipping a unit or it could be brand new construction, which is where we found a bit of a sweet spot in San Francisco where the condo construction boom um, still continues into 2019. And so we'll go to these developers or actually more, more frequently they'll come to us and they'll hire us to be their sort of design stage market sell partner um, in this process. And so they'll say, you know, we have a, 65 unit building and we're going to model out between one and three units, different bedroom configurations and sizes and price points. Um, And they will pay us typically an upfront flat fee that we set per market. So what I mean by that is San Francisco might cost a little bit more than Chicago. Above and beyond that, you're exactly right. We have this opportunity to drive retail sales through those locations. Um, And to that end, I think we look a little more like a traditional retailer where we have some sort of wholesale acquisition cost. In many cases, we're working with uh, the suppliers of these products um, in some sort of consignment relationship, which is excellent because it's reducing our upfront cost. Um, But then, then we have the opportunity to sell through at scale, meaning not just the item in that unit, which is always great if we can sell the item in the unit, but also, you know, as many other of the exact same unit to other people, whether they end up buying that residence or not. So you could walk through and say, you know, I absolutely love this nine foot dining table. It's exactly the right material. It's going to fit perfectly in my dining room. And um, we would have some sort of supplier relationship to be able to basically drop ship or fulfill the item directly to you through the supplier and the terms that we negotiated with that manufacturer. Um, but the ability to make a more traditional retail like margin on that sale. For us, I think of every location we go into as a new sort of micro store or pop-up store. It is going to be limited run or short term in duration. Um, but we have this opportunity to sell merchandise through the space, which is exactly what a store is or has been historically. Um, and rather than having to like put up capital or commit to the space for a fixed or long period of time, we do it with super flexible terms, knowing that we're going to be there anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. Um, and and we lock in some sort of profit margin upfront for making that commitment. And then anything we sell above and beyond that is also going to be you know, profitable for us. Would you be willing to talk me through a specific example? Yeah, sure. Well, we recently um, had the opportunity to work with a fantastic agent um, from the San Francisco office of Compass. Um, And in this case, she had, I believe it was a a three-bedroom, two-bath, single-family home in the San Francisco area. Um, And I think it was planning to be listed somewhere around $1.7 million. Um, And the comps in the area were pretty good. And so the list price, depending on where you might be listening or tuning into the podcast from, um, is fairly reasonable for sort of like this starter or entry-level home with a little backyard and parking in a nice, desirable neighborhood. Um, And so we were called in by Compass. And while this isn't typically our bread and butter, because we've really gotten our start working for developers who are doing new construction and we go in and kind of outfit units for the first time. This was 
more of a, a classic resale, what you think about in sort of the home buying world. It's like properties that already exist that are just changing hands. Once we have this vision of like, well, who are these people? Probably um, we could kind of put them into a likely age bracket. And based on the price of the house, you sort of get an understanding of what the most likely income scenario of those would-be buyers is like. And then you start to triangulate or add on, um, well, if they're buying in this neighborhood, they probably work at one of these five or six companies. We really knew that, you know, probably the people buying this would be a couple that either had young children or were planning to start a family soon. And so from there, we knew that at least one of the bedrooms um, should be programmed out as some sort of kids room. And so we went with a nursery concept. Um, and that turned out to be a really good strategy because the end buyers turned out to be a young couple with um, with an infant or a toddler. Um, and they ended up purchasing the crib and the crib mattress and some of the pieces from that um, the nursery that we had set up. We started to think about, okay, well, when you buy your first home, I mean, this is the first time you're likely investing in certain you know, higher priced, um, longer lead items, whether that's the sofa, a really nice armchair, is it the, is it the rugs? Is it the art? Um, and in all cases, we really think about, okay, well, you're spending so much money on a down payment and on this home, um, you want nice things for it. Like you're not going to show up with your broken Ikea furniture from the apartment you've been living in for the last eight years. But at the same time, like you're maybe a little cash strapped because you just put like $340,000 into a down payment and um, you know, you don't want to spend another um, 50 or $60,000 furnishing this place right now. And so we really go for comfortable, practical, and I like to think of sort of attainably priced items. Um, so things that are well-made or made in the U.S. Um, one local consideration is a lot of people really value sort of green or clean um, materials and uh, manufacturing processes. And I think that usually narrows the like subset of different brands that um, resonate or are relevant. And fortunately, again, because we have some retail operations and we have a lot of relationships with different vendors that can help fulfill product for these types of activations. And so, um, you know, we went with, we ended up using Revival Rugs and the family that purchased the home actually purchased all of the rugs in the home. Um, we add always some like really local um, or locally made and more sort of artisan inspired items that have a very high level of craftsmanship. Those items definitely tend to resonate with local buyers. Um, and in, in this case, we had a beautiful leather armchair with matching ottoman um, that ended up selling. And so anyways, this this um, young couple that purchased this home with Compass or through Compass um, ended up purchasing dozens of items from within. Um, and I think it was like a, a five-figure invoice um, in the end. And uh, on top of that, we had multiple other transactions to other people um, who came in. I think the home was maybe only on market for two or three weekends. It was a very short sell cycle, as we often see here. And it turns out kind of like stacking all of those decision points um, 
in the same small sliver of time is a pretty good way that for most young people coming of age and moving through this process helps them feel like they're getting kind of outsized value. And, and part of what I mean by that is we benefit a lot from oftentimes being a small portion of the total home value or purchase price. Um, and so if you can buy your home with sort of everything you want and need in it or with it for, say, between 1% and 3% of the total price of the home, but you feel like the value and convenience of being able to do that and, like, move in and have that and, and like, have this turnkey lifestyle that's beautiful and feels like it was crafted just for you, oftentimes people will say, like, that's more valuable than the 1% to 3% that you might pay for that. That might make the home actually feel like 20% better or 50% better. Um, and at that point, you know, what we're delivering becomes like really undervalued relative to how the consumer perceives of it. Yeah, there's an economic concept. I think it's called anchoring where, uh, <laughs> you know, if you go into a store and there's a couch for, I don't know, $10,000 and, and it's just that's the couch in the store, you're like, wow, that's really expensive. But if it's part of a package where you're buying a multi-million dollar home, you know, suddenly $10,000 doesn't seem like very much. Precisely. And you do realize that San Francisco, uh, you know, you were talking about starter homes. Be, what was How much was was your starter home? 1.5 million? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the going the going starter home price here. It's, it's not real. And, you know, in many ways, when I think about growing and expanding this business to other cities and other markets, I think a lot of the realities and things that we deal with here are really sort of idiosyncrasies in a much broader national market. But we've certainly benefited from them. And what I would say is early days, our model makes a lot of sense in um, urban, high cost per square foot areas where, you know, your starter homes are going to be high six to mid to high seven figures. And let's turn now, you you also have uh, two, I think, am I right? currently two retail locations? We do. We operate a San Francisco and a New York City showroom. Um, and these are really nice support structures for what we do in that we have at this point, I think actually close to 200 um, past and present brand relationships where as a paid placement, meaning these companies are um, making some financial commitment to batch to have us sell uh, their items in SF or in New York. Um, and it gives us a good understanding of one, how those products and brands perform in market, but more so than that with who and why. Um, and so in these, uh, we call them showrooms, we like to outfit them in a home-like way, not in a way that maps perfectly to what we're doing with showcase and our staged residences, but in a way that feels welcoming and personalized and is ever-changing. So we actually do six different batches per year in each location. Um, and the way that it's set up right now is our batches start in San Francisco and then they move to New York. Um, so when we see success, like in the case of um, Revival Rugs, who we started working with more than a year ago, um, we can double down on those brand relationships and feel really confident about taking those products into 
these staged locations and knowing that, you know, based on the success and the sales history of what we've observed in our own staffed retail locations, um, that they're likely to be successful because the price point is a good fit for those home buyers and the design and quality and narrative of the brand really resonates with that audience. So I think about, you know, having these two retail showrooms and the ways that we partner with brands as a bit of a like intelligence gathering mission, Um, or sometimes I'll describe it as the learning lab for what we do with staged residences. And what's great is, you know, having these, um, these retail locations, they're open six to seven days a week, and it's, it's great marketing um, for a batch as a brand. You guys are at uh, the shops at, at Hudson Yards in New York, which is a pretty new, uh, new development. I know you guys are on the, am I right? You're on the second floor, which is kind of, they've branded as the floor of discovery. So there's other digital native type brands around you guys. You got it. And do you find that people come with that in mind saying, Hey, I'm here to discover new brands and you're a part of that larger discovery experience for shoppers? I think Hudson Yards has been unparalleled in helping people learn about Batch. I think um, six months ago, we were very much known as sort of a San Francisco only cool up and comer, more concept shop sort of play um, known for pushing the envelope, taking a lot of risks, bringing in a lot of cool, small indie undiscovered or up and coming brands. And Hudson Yards has been interesting because I think we're probably the least well-known company or store in the entire retail center, let alone the second floor, which is sort of these nuggets of all these cool brands that, frankly, most people have heard of. They've seen them on Shark Tank or they've purchased their products before or they've read about them or seen them on Instagram, right? Um, And Batch is like totally a wild card. And not only that, but, you know, every eight or so weeks, what we have on offer there is changing entirely. So I think we fit really nicely or squarely into what Related was trying to accomplish with that floor. And for us, the the upside or the benefit has just been that so many more people are getting to know and learn about who we are and what we do. Um, and you know, the foot traffic and exposure that you get from being in New York is just really second to none. And um, people told me that, but I, I really underestimated how much value we would get from just being in New York and constantly having people and media and influencers sort of circulating, which has been fantastic. Yeah, just the density of people and media in Manhattan is amazing. There's nothing like it. No, it's crazy. I mean, I think like HBO has their office like at Hudson Yards. And so um, there's also a lot of like private equity and financial firms that are over there. And um, I think related is going to be moving some of their offices over there. So, you know, during the week and during the day, the types of people that are flowing through there, if they're picking up lunch or grabbing a gift or making a return or exchange are you know, exactly those type of people working in those companies in those places. And the types of connections that we've been able to cultivate through that just in a short time um, has been fascinating. Like, I, I feel very grateful for that. And how does that compare to your retail location in San Francisco? What's interesting is that 
you know, the, the two locations are very different. Hudson Yards is more of a retail center or, or, you know, you could say mall kind of location. And San Francisco is in a 103-year-old historic firehouse in a very residential neighborhood. And so um, it feels very different. Um, we have a lot, lot, lot less foot traffic in San Francisco. In fact, on a daily basis, we'll have um, anywhere from... 15 to 40 X more visitors in New York, if you can imagine that, um, than we do in San Francisco. But what's often fascinating is that, um, Hudson Yards, I think is, is still, uh, in its sort of opening phase and the steady state demographic of shoppers who will go there and, and buy things there is still emerging. And so to that end, the conversion performance at Hudson Yards has been much, much lower than we see in San Francisco, where in a residential area where we've been for nearly two years, we have a very devoted um, and loyal following. They come back, you know, they might come back once a week because we're on their walk to get coffee on Saturday morning, or um, we see them you know, once a month or every time there's a new batch. Um, we hear this term contextual commerce, and I hear that related to batch. Can you explain what that means to you? <laughs> I, I love that term, and I hate this question. Um, so I love the term because I sort of coined it um, as we were putting together the business plan. Um, at the time, there were all sorts of like Silicon Valley kind of buzzwords around types of commerce, right? First there was like e-commerce and then there was subscription commerce. There's probably like 10 or 20 other types of commerce that I'm neglecting. But this idea that you could take homes and turn them into retail locations was all about putting items that are really difficult to purchase through the screen of a phone or a laptop and taking them kind of out of a digital context and putting them into the real world, tactile, sit on it, touch it, talk to someone about it, feel confident in that purchase. Because what I saw and what I learned at One Kings Lane is it's really difficult for people to do that around higher priced home furnishings. And in fact, it's not necessarily just home furnishings. It could be anything with some sort of comfort or sizing element or anything with like a a price point that is above five or $600. And so I just knew that even as the world became more digital and more E and on demand and drop ship, that there absolutely needed to be a company that continued to think, you know, really thoughtfully about how to do that offline. And so to me, that was all about creating contacts and being able to kind of unlock this really exciting, almost, I like to think of it as Airbnb-like way of taking an existing asset class, in this case, the hundreds of millions of homes that already exist or that are being built today, and seeing them as a sort of these like micro storefronts where you could go and get contacts, sit in the chair, see how beautiful or brilliant the color is on the newest or latest TV is like see how that cool $200 toaster like actually performs when you put bread in it. Um, that to me was the contextual commerce opportunity. Have you seen or thought or do you see in the future, I don't know, me going uh, to hang out in a bar and all of the 
I don't know, the glasses, I, you know, everything I see, I stay in a hotel and everything there would be for sale. I mean, is that kind of 10, 15 years down the future, every public place has been staged and things are for sale? I think you can find a myriad of examples of different brands kind of tooling around with different expressions of that, whether it's Shinola opening a hotel in Detroit or, um, you know, different restaurants making the cutlery and table linens and and different flavors and cookbooks and all sorts of things um, accessible and purchasable. Um, my real world experience, which is, you know, I guess limited in scope to the things that I've done in the last few years, um, but I think relevant nonetheless, leads me to believe that it is actually very hard um, to facilitate a transaction or a conversion experience unless there is already some natural kind of path to purchasing something. And back to the concept that you um, were describing earlier around anchoring, I think it's often very difficult when the upsell or the add-on is maybe more expensive or equivalently expensive. I think a lot of the phenomenon that Batch and what we're doing with Showcase um, has really benefited from is the, like the outsized mismatch of kind of home value to item in home. And so, you know, if you're talking about going to a restaurant and eating like a $150 dinner, but then thinking about spending you know, $400 to buy a 10 piece setting of the plates, which you fell in love with, like that's going to be a fairly considered thing. And the, while it's novel and while it's cool and while many diners who like the place settings may contemplate that while they're there, the actual number of people who pull the trigger on that is likely to be quite small versus if you're listing a million dollar home and you walk in and find a 25 or 75 or $200 item relative to the amount that you're, you know that you would be signing up for if you wanted to buy the actual home, everything else just feels like so attainable, so accessible, such a bargain. One thing that we have done um, is we've worked with a co-working, co-living company um, called Outsight, and we've outfitted a couple of their co-working spaces um, or co-living spaces or actually houses. There's one in Venice and there's one here in San Francisco. And we've outfitted them with a lot of brands that we've worked with and we've tried different approaches to, to making them shoppable, doing everything from setting up e-commerce sites to putting um, product catalogs in the rooms when people check in so they could see what types of linens and, you know, what types of mattresses and what types of plates that they're going to be staying with while they're there. And, you know, candidly, that hasn't worked out very well. And I think about that as being a little closer to the hospitality use case. Um, and I think while there's a lot of enthusiasm and, and a lot of like general opportunity there. Um, My real world experience has suggested that there are some limitations and things that's hard about executing that um, and make it somewhat difficult for me to imagine super widespread 
adoption of this concept that you're talking about. I love it. That was such a thoughtful answer. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lindsay. It's been a wonderful conversation and I've learned a ton. Well, my pleasure. You can find us online, visitbatch.com or on Instagram at visitbatch. Awesome. I'm going to go follow you guys right now on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Take care, James. Good to talk with you. I learned from Lindsay that contextual commerce is tricky. You got to pay close attention to the relative pricing of things. I'm curious if you've seen something out there that you wish was for sale, but it wasn't. Maybe there's uh, somebody out there that's missing a contextual commerce opportunity. I want to know about it. Leave us a message on the Where We Buy hotline, and we'll use your voice on an upcoming show. Give us a call at 602-633-4061. Be sure to tell us your name and where you're calling from. I'd like to thank Nick Frank over at the Building Success podcast. Nick had me on for an episode to talk about how digital native retailers roll out their physical spaces. That's the Building Success podcast, episode 25. Coming up, we've got a big project we've been working on for a while that's finally coming to completion. Taylor Coyne has been interviewing owners and operators and curators of food halls across North America in order to understand all of the hard decisions and creativity that goes into building and operating a food hall. Coming up, Taylor and I are going to be talking about everything that we've learned from all of those interviews and the report that she's written based on them. It's called, So You Want to Build a Food Hall. Great title, huh? Yeah, that was my idea. Be sure not to miss it. Subscribe to Where We Buy on the iPhone podcast app, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Or if you've got the Amazon Alexa, Echo, whatever it's called, you can enable the Where We Buy skill Um, And it's real simple. Just say, Echo, enable the Where We Buy skill. Our theme music is Run in the Night by the Good Lauds under Creative Commons license. 